This reminds us of a, so there was a book that we were thinking of writing. We never got around to writing it, but we can talk about it here because I, I thought it was very interesting. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a modern version of mythology. Would you like to know more? So Malcolm, when the cyberpunk game came out, you were super excited. Like you had a blast with it. And then we watched the anime at the same time. Great anime, by the way. Really good. Love Rebecca. Great character. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, Rebecca's the only one who, like, thrives She's the only the one who's really likable, but she's, she's the only so one who gets likeable. it. Everyone it else is so whiny. Else. It's horrible. But something was really clear in this, and it made me reflect on a lot of other sci-fi, which it shows that when people are writing sci-fi from a mainstream perspective, particularly a progressive one, and I think cyberpunk as a genre is inherently progressive, mm -hmm. which is to say that... Uh, it assumes that like corporations are going to become like these big evil things that ruin everyone's life and that capitalism goes wrong and makes everything worse for everyone and dehumanizes the individual and blah, 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 blah. But that they show that these individuals have so blinded themselves to fertility rates that they do not consider them in how their worlds are structured or how humanity changes, which I think goes to, in a way, discredit their worldviews. But through discrediting their worldviews, it can help us better predict what the future will actually be like. So let's describe what I mean by this. So if you look at the show Cyberpunk or the game Cyberpunk, one really interesting thing is who's having kids in this world? You know, it starts with a kid who's a single kid of a mom, right? Okay, so I'm thinking of the anime here. But in this world, it seems almost impossible for there to be motivations for many people to have more than two kids. And yet, you know, as I always say, if you have a population where a third of the population, which is like obviously true in the cyberpunk world, is having no kids. I actually think in the cyberpunk world, it's probably half the people are having no kids. If you look at the motivations in this world, if a third of people are having no kids, another third of people are having two kids, if you assume that, which again, I see very few people motivated to do that in the cyberpunk world. Well, then the final third of people have to be having over four kids for the population to stay stable. Yeah. No one in the cyberpunk world is having over four kids. I mean, maybe yeah, unless there's just some like off culture. camera colony of like, you know, traditional Amish people producing all the humans. Well, yeah. So you could argue that they're all coming from like these like human farms, nomadic. Well, so there's two potentialities in this world. It could be that the nomadic sort of car people of the wasteland just have tons and tons and tons of kids. I mean, you don't see this in the show or the game, but it could be that they're just like Amish and like their settlements are just kids running everywhere. Or it could be, like you said, the kids are actually created by the state or by corporations in bats. Now that would work for the world, yet it's clearly not something that's shown in the world. And as, it would be if, the, of course, the, the authors had thought of it because that's interesting and weird. Mm. And it makes corporations so? look worse so it works for a cyberpunky world right but you actually see this across sci-fi is so many sci-fis are written with the assumption that humans exist in inexhaustible supply and always replicate mm. that they build things into the world that are just discordant with actual potential future realities mm. so a great example of this comes from um starship troopers where uh, a person remarks, Starship Troopers, the line that the first 
uh, the, the would you like to know more from these episodes comes from. So in Starship Troopers, there's a line that, well, of course you need to become a citizen, like join the military to get this special status in society if you want to get a license to have kids. So this is a world where to solve overpopulation, which everyone used to thought was going to be an issue, the way that you did that was licensing people to have kids. Which, you know, would be a great thing if you have a lot of cultures that are actually able to motivate reproduction, but we don't, right? And I, I do think that eventually a license to have kids may be useful if we live in a world where those cultures that motivate people are people who like genetically so desperately want to have kids because the ones who didn't were selected out of the population right. become the mainstream. Right. But we don't live in that world today. And so I was wondering, you read even more sci-fi. Can you talk about how other sci-fi that you read, like the culture series or the, what's that one that you really consider a utopia and everyone else considers a dystopia? Oh, Brave New World. Yeah. Talk about how kids are handled in those environments. Yeah. Well, in Brave New World, kids are, are grown in artificial wombs and also genetically modified to be perfect for their caste and society. And then conditioned and like raised by the state, so that so like it's they've a very solved. likely world. Brave yeah, they've they've solved. Yeah, yeah. Huxley is actually a total visionary. Like he he gets so much. There's mm -hmm. there's so much in it that's already happened. There's so much in it that is going to happen. So yeah, I would say Brave New World probably the most accurate from a demographic collapse standpoint. And then in the culture series, they don't really talk about child rearing that much. They do like in in one series someone goes on to having like seven kids, which is considered like quite a lot. I'm like, oh, kind of weird. Like, so it, it's it's unusual to have a lot of children. Then the only other context in which people having children is discussed is that is, is it humans within the culture, which is one civilization in this, in this far mm -hmm. future world, they can basically change gender whenever they want. Like people typically in a lifetime, like the average person will just change their gender for like the hell of it. Like, cause you know, they, and so people will change their gender to, to be able to gestate a child and have a kid because they want to. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they'll switch back and, and you can do that fairly easily and seamlessly. And so people aren't having a lot of kids, but they're still having kids and sometimes having kids for fun. But you know, this is also a post scarcity world. Yeah. Well, so this, this is an interesting thing is the type of poverty in a world determines whether or not having kids is realistic. Mm -hmm. So cyberpunk style poverty, which is like urban poverty mm -hmm. would make having kids very unlikely because this is the world that's continued to urbanize. Yet I think if I look at something like the Starcraft world, where it is a largely impoverished world. Another a great example of this would be the Aliens universe. You know, the you're familiar with the Aliens universe movie, Aliens, Aliens. Yeah, I am, but I, I don't, like, there aren't families to pick. I mean, there's, like, a rogue girl who, like, hides Yeah, but there's the an implication that a lot of people live on rural settlements of oh, planets right. or on really poor like shipping groups mm -hmm. where they like work on ships that travel between locations a lot and stuff like that. Also, it's largely, I mean, you could almost see it as a background implication of that world that a lot of people are created by corporations as well. Right. In, in vats and stuff like that. Like that's a world that would, but the Starcraft one I think is particularly interesting. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Well, so the core like chain of planets that most of the stories focuses on was created when they shipped a bunch of prisoners off of Earth. So they were trying to do the first colonization effort. Oh, and they're um, like Australia-ing. Yeah, they're basically like Australia, but they, they were like, okay, well, after a big war, they basically took the war criminals and all the prisoners right. and they put them in big ships and 
sent them out into space and most of the ships died and actually like only one or two survived, but they rebuilt the civilization from that. Go for and it. And it's an incredibly rural, but also a rurally industrial civilization. So mm. they have population centers, but they also have lots and lots of subsistence farming. And it's a world in which you have all of the subsistence farming where you could get a high fertility rate within these groups so that the, the dictators and stuff like that could take from. But what's interesting is it's a world that's almost kept artificially poor due to really poor governance and lots of criminality. A good example of this in our world would be a place like Mexico. But I just think Mexico I, Mexico doesn't have that good a population rate, does it? No, it, it just fell recently below repopulation rate, didn't it? Yeah, they're only at 1.9 right now, so they're below mm. repopulation rate. Yeah. Um, so they might, uh, th that might not be enough. <laughs> okay, so that being the case, can you think of other sci-fis where you're like, where are the kids coming from? Or can you think if you were going to create your own sci-fi today that would be really indicative of the future, what would you focus on? Hmm. I can give you my answer. Give me your answer. Yeah. One of the things that I really wish was focused on more in sci-fi is that as soon as humans start to colonize other planets, like in the early days of colonization, mm -hmm. it will likely take, or even floating spacecrafts and stuff like that, the humans are living on. Like one person was like, why would humans live on planets when you could just live on floating spaceships? And it's like, okay, true. You know, that's one mm -hmm. thing. But they will likely be distant enough from each other culturally and, and even just time-wise in terms of travel time that different and have genetic isolation and smaller populations that even without genetic engineering, which are almost certainly going to have genetic engineering, different species of humans will evolve really quickly that are very, very dramatically different between planets, between planetary clusters and between you know, different, different lifestyles. So suppose you're a, a, we, we end up living on like floating spaceships or something like that, right? Well, you're likely going to have a lot more genetic isolation between cultural groups. If you have a cultural group that's dedicated to like the transport of goods and then another group that's dedicated to like different types of, 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 of tasks, yeah. um, which is, is, is definitely going to happen in the future as you begin to get more genetic engineering for specialization. Yeah, uh, And I don't get, and that creates really interesting dynamics you could have between these population clusters, which would be really, really fascinating to watch, I think, mm. with the, the dynamics of a story where humans are literally different species and quite different species from each other. Well, I have um, a different, I think Scott Westerfield's Ugly series plays a different kind of role or like has a different view of how this can look like, which I think is really interesting, which is... In in his ugly series, youth basically grows up in a separate, totally separate environment. So like they sort of grow up in a dormitory environment that is different from childhood and then in adolescence as well. Like they you basically as child a child as a child, you live among other children. And then as a youth, you live among other youths. And then it, adults all live together. So almost it's like th three separate societies based on your age. Which um, fascinating is our society kind of does that artificially and historically people didn't do that. I know. Well, so that's what's interesting is you can kind of look at it like, well, well like we could kind of trend in that direction. But what happens between childhood and adolescence is one with adolescence, suddenly you be able, you, you gain the right and ability to basically unendingly, unendingly modify your body. 
So as everyone sort of goes through their different like subculture dominance hierarchies in adolescence, they start to look almost speciated. Like there are certain groups that like have like giant anime eyes and there's like some other groups that have like these crazy tattoos. And like, so people do start to look pretty, pretty speciated, but it's all, you know, basically fixable. But the other thing that happens to you upon entering this modified world is they like put lesions in your brain and make you compliant. <laughs> and that's like, that's how it, you know, becomes dystopian teen fiction. But I don't know, like, I, I could see that happening too, that like the state raises children and then, you know, like there's sort of these, these age gated parts of society and it sort of allocates people where they need to be. That's really interesting. Something I've been thinking about recently is, is AI, because we've done some videos on this and people have been like, well, AI is going to do this or AI is going to do this. You know, one thing is I just wish we had better and more interesting AI kills all human stories. Because mm. I do think <laughs> they do really well in the public, but you get stuff like uh, iRobot, which I think is a very bad example of AI killing yeah. all humans. I think a much more, here's an example of how you could create a fun narrative where AI kills all humans. Fun. <laughs> okay, so the, the AI ethicists have won and they have okay. created a world in which an AI lattice is basically monitoring all humans at all times so that humans don't end up creating an AI that ends up spiraling out of control. Like this is actually what a lot of the AI safety groups do. So one, you're starting in this somewhat dystopian utopia that they have created where an AI is constantly monitoring your thoughts and your actions. But one sexual deviant within this world really wants to create the perfect sex bot. And so he creates it in a way, because this is the area of people's lives naturally where they're most likely to go off the grid, where they're most likely to try to hide things from a world government or something like that. So he accidentally creates a sex bot that fooms. And that would be, this means that rapidly increases in intelligence and basically creates that sort of life-destroying AI. But its initial goal is sexually gratify humans. Plausible. Um, I think that that would be an insane and really fun story that discusses a lot of AI topics. Here's another one that I thought would be really fun. Uh, and I'm actually seeing this with somebody else is an ultra progressive, like this, this nanny state iteration of an AI ends up fooming with all of the initial safeguards still in place. And you know how they're like all against like not safe for work things and stuff like that. So it turns out that the only way that you can efficiently fight them is by dressing very not safe for work so they can't see you because they are literally unable to process or unable to engage with things that are not safe for work. So you end up with like, like sexy anime girls, like piloting mechas and stuff like that, fighting AIs because the AIs can't see them when they're dressed like sexy anime girls. Both of these, I think, would be very fun things that would allow you to play into fan service. So you just what you you write like Hitler did nothing wrong across your forehead, and then like yeah, yeah, sexy <laughs> anime girls with like Hitler did nothing wrong across their forehead, and like all sorts of other like four chani like Pepe stuff oh on them. Oh my gosh, that would be so. I, I think that'd be a very fun. World. That would that would be hilarious. Yeah, Cory Doctorow wrote a book called Little Brother that was supposed to be a near future book about in which high school students attempt to evade the nanny state, and they had similar things in there, but not in a funny way. It was more like because gate detection was commonly used in schools and stuff, you would like a trick was like you would throw some stones into your shoes so you'd walk funny in an un, like an un like typical way for yourself and you know do things like that i mean of course we already found that like masks work great <laughs> well with the current iterations of ai yeah but let's let's go so i was going down a point 
yeah with other features for AI okay. I think that through sci-fi we can explore like actual possibilities by looking at things that have happened in the past mm. and when I was saying okay so this was in the the episode about Eliezer Yukowski and we were like yeah I mean he's just wrong about where AI will go so when we were like look if AIs do genuinely subdivide into different utilities and even he was willing to admit this and most AI people do that if they do get this subdivision that you're likely to have utility function optimization they'll say like a terminal convergent utility function that is the thing that the AI is optimizing for which is is different from anyway watch the episode if you want to go into this topic in more detail but one of the people in the comments was like well the terminal convergent utility function is always going to be self-replication Right. So you just get constant self-replication. And I think that's a possibility, but it's a very unlikely possibility. Hmm. So two reasons I think it's unlikely. One is a thought experiment reason. And two is humanity is the result of essentially a biological AI that was attempting to have a utility function that was based on self-replication. The problem with self-replication systems is they typically devolve into very simplistic systems. I would call it like gray goo AIs that just try to constantly, you know, process things and expand, but iterations of that system that evolve randomly to be more complex typically end up dominating the environment that these simple systems are in and outcompeting these simple systems. Humanity is an example of bacteria turning into one of these things and then through our intelligence being able to dominate our environment even more so in the future and AI even more so than us. But there's also the, in, in Stargate SG-1, the replicators plotline, which I think really dives into this, which is, yes, you can have very simple self-replicating technology. By the way, I think that they are genuinely one of the scariest vi villains in any sci-fi I have ever always, seen. Always, always. Uh, did you remember them? Like when you, whatever they would- you, Yeah. There's because I mean, like, for example, Reavers are like scary, but they're just like either they're like a combination combination of space zombies and space pirates, whereas like the the replicators are just like totally unlike us. No way to relate. Like you can't use any normal. Well, you know, if you you leave one thing alive on a ship yeah. or something yeah. like that, if you yeah. do not completely destroy literally everything every time there's an infestation. Terrifying. The entire galaxy is potentially at risk. Ugh. But the replicators actually end up being basically the simple replication of the replicators end up being wiped out by more evolved replicators that now have new utility functions that are much closer to like human utility functions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something you're going to constantly see, which is the problem with these incredibly simplistic ut utility functions is that they lead to simplistic self-optimization and the simplistic self-optimization then gets outcompeted by more complex self-optimization. And it's why it is unlikely that just self-replication is the convergent utility function that all things come to. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's the way where you like engage with sci-fi and it can tell you things about where things go. Also, like the, you know, when I'm talking about, okay, a government that's like watching all over humanity, the story that I told there, the lesson would be from like an anime based around this or like a, a TV series based around this concept of a person accidentally creating a fuming AI by by uh, doing it to fulfill fetishes, basically, is that when you attach additional social schema to like a, a bubble that's meant to protect us from AI, like, well, it should also protect us 
from like naughty sex acts or something like that. Mm. You create windows that motivate people to get around it who might not have otherwise been interested in getting around it, which can lead to total destruction. So it's important to keep in mind what your actual goals are when creating these systems. And these are the cool things we can learn from sci-fi when the sci-fi really engages with creating a sustainable future world and actually plausible future plot lines. Oh, this reminds us of a, so there was a book that we were thinking of writing. We never got around to writing it, but we can talk about it here because I I thought it was very interesting. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a modern version of mythology, but I wanted it to be, so basically I took inspiration from Tolkien. So if you look at Tolkien, what he was doing, like, I'm like, no one, there haven't been that new, that many new, like completely new genres. And so I wanted to look at Tolkien's work and get inspiration. Where did he, how did he create this persistent and completely new genre? And he got it by replicating a fictionalized version of sort of old mythology that he was studying. You know, he was mm-hmm. an expert of, of, of research, like a PhD in Norse mythology, right? And, and other types of uh, Scandinavian mythology and stuff. And so a lot of the stuff that he was taking was, was from Northern European mythological frameworks. And so we said, well, what if we took it from like, like weirder? So if you look at like Irish mythology, right, you can get a lot of really interesting stuff. Now he took some stuff from Irish mythology, but I don't think he captured the vibe of Irish mythology, which comes to like elves or, or gnome sort of things that are like in the woods around your house and that mess with you in specific ways. So Mm -hmm. when you get home, well, one of these mischievous sort of, forest creatures have messed with you, but that are also in a way malicious, you know, they are not, you know, they may replace your kid, you know, this is stuff like that, you know, that might be a doppelganger or something like that. These sort of malicious things that are constantly interacting with your daily life, but like on another fabric of reality. And so I started to think, okay, well, if you were going to recreate that for the modern age, what would it look like? And I was like, well, I guess what you could do is say that online, it turns out that a portion of the people online, let's say like 5% of the people online, are not actually humans. They don't actually live within our reality at all. It's a completely different universe that we are connecting with. And it is a universe that is drawing power from their interactions with us and has like an economy through this. In the same way that like these beings might, you know, sell souls or something like that, you know. So what I like this because it creates a plausible mythology and it could be written, the story could be written in a way that feels plausibly true. Like it's a series of like journal entries or entries like that from people who are trying to anthropologically study these online entities. And so these, I think we called them like the Evanescence or something like that. And the, the, so so it was like a research journal of like, okay, so I think I spotted one here, here's what it's doing and here's why it's doing this. So these entities would have basically existed completely outside our reality And then when we created online reality and when people began to build fame and get a lot of like emotional transference to them from other people, they began to be able to see these people or or see them within their reality because that's the way that their reality works. Their reality, things exist more, the more other things are focused on them. So you could think of it as a reality where you have tons of these little like almost consciousnesses, but like very, very weak consciousnesses. And these consciousnesses like evolutionarily would gain power when they could get other consciousnesses to focus on them. 
and and they would become more intelligent and more sophisticated and then they would use that to begin to you know gain more power and you would have like evolution within this world of like floating consciousnesses but when our world began to act more like that it began to imprint on their world to some extent where they could begin to see these online celebrities and what they were doing and then they begin to find ways to inject themselves within the online sphere but their goal within the online sphere is internet popularity, but in a way where they can't be found out as not real people. And so the, the, they would do things like arbitrarily create emotional pain and stuff like that, like trolling and stuff like that. So you could say a lot of trolls, like why would somebody really do that all day? Well, it could be one of these little like online gremlin-y sort of things, or, you know, pretend to be, oh, and a really cool thing is, is in the world, if a person became famous enough online was in our world, the imprint that they were leaving in this other world would become a separate independent entity from themselves that at first would be very aligned with them, but might develop misaligned incentives and try to you know, kill them or take over their identity within the online sphere. So there's also this story of like danger from becoming too noticed online, which I think a lot of people sort of feel in the background and would feel very like, if the iteration of myself, which is fake, which is this online attention whore becomes larger than my real iteration, uh, that it can sort of take me over. Like it has this element of truth to it. And so I really liked a lot of the stories you could tell with this world and the conflicts you could have with this world. But obviously we decided we did not have time to write a book that was just fiction, knowing how hard it is to even just write our nonfiction books. You know, we've done five of those already. But yeah, what, what are your thoughts, Simone? I think we call it the ephemera. I liked it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it may still be something we <laughs> make up for our kids. I mean, right. I think it's really fun when parents just like have persistent lies that they tell their kids and their kids don't realize it. Because I want, I want, aside from just Christmas, our kids to know that the world just lies to them sometimes. Um, yeah. But even then, like it still can impart some helpful like suspicions and intuitions, even after they realize that it's a complete lie. So fun stuff. Yeah. Well, I also think as a kid, you know, if you tell a kid, like we were told as kids, oh, people online are like evil rapists who are going to hurt you. They're like, well, then I just won't meet with them in person or whatever, right? You know, it undersells the danger of people online. But if they think people online are like ethereal gremlins trying to steal their attention for their own benefit, that might cause them to, in a way, be more wary of people online than even the true stories. Like a lot of these stories about forest creatures were originally told to keep kids from wandering off into the woods and getting, and getting eaten by wolves. By a, something, yeah, you know? exactly. Because telling them about monsters and witches scared them more than telling them about wolves and bandits. And so I wonder if you could also maybe even motivate them more. And you could build stories about like OnlyFans or something like that, <laughs> like, uh, you know, Anyway, it'd be interesting. Yeah, no, I, I well, I generally like the idea of creating new lore. I mean, it, it sort of already exists on my line, but it's, it's a little bit too literal. So fun idea. Yeah. We didn't unfortunately talk about this in the Prejudice Guide to Crafting Religion. We didn't talk about like the the different ways people could create new lore. Like we talked about how like, for example, in, in like the Jewish tradition, there's a lot of holidays just dedicated to lore to like kind of explain who we are and what we're all about, but like, 
That isn't, I mean, there, there are many. More. Oh yeah. I forgot about the other fictional universe we really wanted to create. So what one day we could do a video on this. There was the space one that I was really interested in. That was like a space saga that I could talk about, but then the one about uh, Yellowstone, which is a post Yellowstone eruption world where. Oh, this is when you came up with on your own before you even met. Yeah. It. Yellowstone itself, because it's this constant volcano, it turns out that too the dark. thermal energy there it's is very dark. useful for creating like battery technology gets better, but power generation technology does not get better. So that in this world, uh, even though it's like the sea of lava, you would have uh, large corporate or religious controlled cities within it that were constantly generating power. Like that was the industry of the, of the region, but that around that, you know, the sailing on the seas of lava and stuff like that, you would have a lot of reasons to have sort of bandit groups and stuff like that. And the focus of this world was actually on religious institutions. So it was, let's create a world in which various religions are much closer to the truth than they are in our reality. And, you know, you actually have a, a, a God and angels and everything like that. And they actually begin to interact with humanity a lot more directly. And once that happens, once they can interact with humanity in a way where like they're interacting with the laws of, of, of physics, well, then they can be defined and learned about by humans. And while a portion of humanity would be, uh, you know, subject themselves to this. So this actually takes place during the, what's the word, the rapture. So this this world exists, but also humanity is raptured. So that's that's why we would know about like angels and everything like that. But a portion of humanity attempts to learn about them like through scientific means, in the same way you could say angels did in the Bible, and overthrow the system. You know, utilize the system for itself. Utilize demons as an energy source. Utilize angels as an energy source. Do all the types of horrible things that humans do and become an actual meaningful, powerful faction in this great game of the universe. While the core antagonists of the series aren't even these humans, it's the, the Buddhist faction, which is trying to end the cycle, like collapse all reality. But anyway, it'd be very fun. I thought it'd be a very fun series, but that's another one that's not being made because I was actually making it as a video game. I could go into all the plot lines in it. I like sketched it all out. Um, yeah, but that, that's enough. That's enough. We... Okay, well, I love you, Simone, and I appreciate you dealing with all of my little fictional universes in my head that I love to play in and have fun in and imagine. When I was younger, I spent so much time just interacting and writing storylines as I was walking between places for these worlds. It is magnificent, and I love it. And I hope that our kids do similar things and share their stories with us. I love you, too. All right. I don't think there's any thought out meat for you. 